Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. We have a mad, mad week to cover. Week 18 of the NFL season. We've got picks to make. We've got a little bit of free agent discussion. And a little bit of college basketball, actually. I feel like that's the first time we've talked about that this season. But the biggest thing, of course, is that the Michigan Wolverines won their first national championship in football in 26 years. A 34-13 win over the Washington Huskies in the national championship game. They become only the sixth team, if I had that right, the sixth team to win 15 or more games in an unbeaten season in college football. Yale, back in 1894, the Bulldogs went 16-0. 1897, Penn Quakers went 15-0. And then more recently, four 15-0 seasons in the last six years. Clemson went 15-0 in 2018. LSU in 2019. Georgia last year. And then Michigan this year. Michigan actually allowed the fewest points of those four teams. They, they also scored the fewest points, but they had the strongest defense out of all of them letting up only 156 points, just over 10 per game in that stretch. Also, from a historical standpoint, Michigan breaks a tie with Notre Dame and USC for the fourth most titles ever for college football, or at least in the, the FBS. Princeton has 28. A lot of people don't realize Princeton has 28. Yale has 27. Of course, Princeton has not won since, I believe it was 1950, and the Ivy League has not participated in the FBS in a long time, but it's Princeton, Yale, Alabama now at 18, and Michigan at 12. So Michigan is the second most by an active FBS team, and that's after recording their 1,000th win earlier this season, first FBS team ever to accomplish that feat. Blake Corum was named the offensive MVP of this game. 21 carries for 134 yards and two fourth-quarter TDs. Donovan Edwards also dominant on the ground. Six carries for 104 yards and two touchdowns. Really more dominant in terms of the, the big play run game. Will Johnson named the defensive MVP with four tackles and a pick, although Mikey Sainer still really put this game on ice with an 81-yard interception return that set up Michigan for their Final touchdown scored by Corum. J.J. McCarthy was not spectacular in this game. He had a passer rating under 60, but he managed the game well enough. He was 10 of 18 for 140 yards. Didn't throw a touchdown, but also did not turn the football over. He did what he had to do behind a solid offensive line and an excellent run game, a defense that was stellar in this game for the Wolverines. Michael Penix Jr., for the record, I... His performance, I didn't think is that bad. I don't think his performance on paper is indicative of the way he played. Threw for 255 yards, had a touchdown, but had two interceptions. He made very few mistakes, but Michigan made him pay for each one. Of course, there was the the throw that was behind Romo Dunze on 4th and seven really near midfield, wide open as Penix threw back to his right, a little bit under pressure, so you have to give a little bit of credit credit rather to the Michigan defense there, but it was behind Odunze who was wide open and perhaps could have scored 
on that play. And so Michigan went to the half up 17-10. The Wolverines really rode this game after a dominant first quarter. Two long touchdowns by Donovan Edwards. They really did a good job of playing to the score. They did not trail in this game. They were not even tied after 0-0. So the big issue for Washington was playing from behind in this game because those turnovers add up. So they were down 17-3 when they turned the ball over on downs. And Michael Penix Jr. made that throw behind Odunze, who ultimately did not have a terrible game. He had five catches for 87 yards. But still, Washington could not get anything done on the ground. That was the biggest difference in this game. Besides the turnovers, Michigan dominated Washington on the ground. 303 yards for the Wolverines in this game, including a season-high 104 for Edwards. Corum and Edwards alone combined for 268 yards and two touchdowns on 27 carries. Even McCarthy had over 30 yards rushing. And then the other big thing... Michigan won the turnover battle. Michigan did not turn the football over, which they were pressured to do. They they did a little bit against Alabama, but they did all the simple things right in this game, which they didn't necessarily do against Alabama last week, but they had gotten away with it. And Washington limited to just 46 yards on the ground, which is remarkable. Dylan Johnson, who was obviously banged up in this game, but still, he was limited on 11 carries to just 33 yards. And so J.J. McCarthy, no, he did not do much in this game, but he didn't do the wrong thing. He did enough. He didn't do the wrong thing. Because with the turnover on downs, now fortunately for Washington, Michigan didn't get any points out of that, but still, they're down. Washington's down 17-3 at that point. They get a touchdown later on in the half. 17-10. This game, now to be fair, 21-point game. This was a, a definitely a closer game than the score would indicate. Because it was what? It was I think it was 17-13 or 20 to 13 rather at the end of the third quarter. And it was 17-13 at half. So it was actually a fairly close game for mu for much of it. But for Washington, you have that pick to start the second half. First play of the second half, Michigan takes a field goal out of it. That's three points right there. And then in the fourth, you have another pick by Penix, trailing 27-13 on fourth and 13. Mikey Sainer still with the pick, runs back 81 yards. Michigan eventually gets a touchdown out of it. That is at least a 10-point swing, if not a 14-point swing right there. So, you take away the turnovers, and really this was, at most, about an eight-point game. Really, this was a one-score game without the turnovers. And that's the big difference. McCarthy didn't turn the ball over, Penix did. I think Penix is actually going to be a very capable quarterback in the NFL if he goes to a team that already has a good offensive line, because he's been a guy who has a bad injury history. McCarthy, I think, is another guy who's going to have to be in a good situation because Michigan has a really good offensive line. I don't know if his talent alone can carry that team. Now, to be fair, a lot of court, most quarterbacks, I don't think talent alone, just from the quarterback, can carry a team. Even C.J. Stroud has some, has some things around him this year. But I think J.J. McCarthy and Michael Penix Jr. both have the capabilities to be really good NFL quarterbacks. 
they're going to need to be thrust into good situations, though. Guys like Caleb Williams, we'll see about Drake May and Jaden Daniels probably, are guys who I think can be put more into an average to below average situation and maybe thrive the way C.J. Stroud has in the early part of his career. But back to the college aspect, it was it was ultimately a great performance by the Wolverines. They did earn this game, and I will say there will always be a cloud over this team. It's true, there will always be a cloud over this team because of the alleged sign-stealing, the three-game suspension for Jim Harbaugh, multiple three-game suspensions for Jim Harbaugh after the first incident getting back to the possible recruit, alleged recruiting violations back in 2020. But first off, if you're Michigan, you got to say the first three games, they're, they're probably games they would have won anyway. They, they didn't really have a tough schedule until they had to play Penn State, essentially. Their big, their big games were all down the stretches. Penn State, Ohio State. I will say Iowa is not an easy team to beat, but they're pretty much all, they're primarily defense. That That's that's the big thing. That was a game that Michigan easily should have won and did. And then you have the playoff. You have Alabama and Washington. So there were four games that really defined the Wolverines this year. Penn State and Ohio State without Jim Harbaugh and with Sharon Moore. And then you have Alabama and Washington with Harbaugh. Now, I would compare this team to the 2022 Astros. Because once you got to, I don't know when it was, week six, week seven, week eight of this particular season, Michigan had all the attention on them because of the sign stealing. And... Obviously, you'd be mad. It's a it's a terrible situation, and if it, you know, assuming it's true, it's cheating. But the flip side is that them winning the championship after the scandal came out, in some in some ways, exonerates them. In some ways, and I'll say that because all the pressure is on them, because all the eyes of the world are on them. I'd said this a few weeks ago, really, that. I think really when the Connor Stallions thing, when that whole news broke out, I had said, if you're really, you know, if you're the NCAA, you want to punish Michigan, make them try to win fairly. The eyes of the world, the, the, the court of public opinion is against them. The eyes of the world are on them. And if they cheated, they must be incredible magicians. Well, if they cheated, sorry, if they cheated post-investigation, post all of that, they must be incredible magicians because they are hiding something very well. And at that point, you have to win it fair and square. And they did. They won harder games cleanly. And look, I, I wouldn't necessarily rule out the idea that other teams are stealing signs as well. We, we said the same thing with the Astros in 2020 when we all found out about it, that Sealing signs is okay because, to an extent, because, you know, if you're a runner on second, and obviously this doesn't work anymore because most teams now have the electronic 
pitch pitch coordinator, whatever. If you if you're a runner on second, you see the catcher signaling. You know you can see that that's just just part of the game. You happen to be there anyway. But it's electronic stein stealing that's a problem, and it's possible that more teams were involved because obviously we found out later on that. Now, to be fair, to a much lesser extent, and obviously with lesser results, maybe not Boston, but the, but the Red Sox have been part of it, the Yankees have been part of it. And so the, I compare this team to the 2022 Astros in that you may not like or even respect them for what they, for the Astros, we know they did. For, for Michigan, it seems like what they did or what they're accused of doing, whatever. And you may even want significant punishment. You may think they weren't punished enough. I will say, I, I, I don't know how far this Michigan thing goes. I didn't think it was a particularly transparent investigation. But you have to respect them for winning cleanly. It's the same thing you can say about, you know, it's the same thing you, about, you can say about the Patriots in 2016, post-Deflategate. Or Patriots in, you know, actually, actually in 2000. Seven actually post Spygate, where they'd already been, where they'd already been punished, and then ultimately had the eyes of the world. Or I think they were punished at the end of the season, but ultimately had the eyes of the world on them at that point. And still, although they didn't win the Super Bowl, finished with an undefeated regular season and came very close to winning the Super Bowl. So it's that point where if you're a fan. You don't have to like it, but you have to respect it. And it's it's pretty fair. So Michigan ultimately wins this one as their first title since 1997. We'll see where Harbaugh ends up. We'll see if he returns. It doesn't seem he hasn't said anything yet. There are rumors abound that he'll go to the Raiders or go to the Chargers. But he ultimately got the job done. He delivered on his promise. It's a Michigan team and a Michigan fan base that had been frustrated for so long, losing to Ohio State for so many years, finally chipping away over the last couple of years in particular. They've beaten Ohio State three years in a row now. They've made the college football playoff in three straight years, but they had fallen in the semifinals the last two times. This felt like it could be the last chance for this era of Michigan football, and they ultimately got it done. Now, speaking of the NFL, let's let's move on. Let's talk about Week 18. Let's start with the Saturday games. The Pittsburgh Steelers defeat the Baltimore Ravens by a score of 17-10. to They put up 10 points in the fourth quarter. Najee Harris finishes with 26 carries for 112 yards and a touchdown. The Steelers end up clinching a playoff spot as Jacksonville lost to Tennessee on Sunday. That gets the Steelers in. They will be the seventh seed. They will play on the road against the Buffalo Bills. Spoiler alert, in case you didn't know what the Bills did this weekend. The Steelers, however, do lose T.J. Watt to an MCL sprain for their wild card game against the Buffalo Bills in Orchard Park. That will be this weekend. And so that's a huge loss for them, as it looks like it'll still be... Mason Rudolph, as far as we can tell, I know that there was talk that Kenny Pickett could be back by the end of the regular season, 
But Mason Rudolph for the game goes 18 of 20 for 152 yards and a touchdown. The Ravens managed to put up 10 points. But they were playing without Zay Flowers. They were playing without Lamar Jackson. Few players that were really significant. There were a number of key players. It's also a rainy day. Now, Watt also, the, the upside is that Watt had two sacks, claimed the NFL sack title for the third consecutive year. Somehow he is the first player ever to do that, at least since the sack was first recorded in 1981 or 1982, rather, I believe. And so, in the... But, but even then, in the 40 or so year history of the sack being recorded, that still features probably the best pass rushers of all time, be it Reggie White, Bruce Smith, Lawrence Taylor, Michael Strahan, Jared Allen is another name I'm just throwing out there, John Randall... Just a bunch of guys I can think of off the top of my head. Julius Peppers. A bunch of guys I can think of off the top of my head. And so a lot of guys in the last 40 years, the, the biggest one I can think of before that is probably Deacon Jones. But that is an incredible accomplishment for T.J. Watt. It is huge, though, that the Steelers will be without not only their best defensive player, probably their best player this, cup, this upcoming week in a game... They are very likely to lose. They are heavily favored to lose. I think it's a funny way of putting it. But we'll see. Mason Rudolph had a 71-yard touchdown pass in the pouring rain to Deontay Johnson in this game. And so you never know. Never know what happens. The Steelers are a very ground-oriented game, a ground-oriented team anyway. But they do have some pretty good receivers. They've been able to take advantage of the short passing game. And Buffalo's defense has been pretty banged up this year, especially in the secondary. So, like we've said all year, don't rule anything out. In the late game Saturday, the Houston Texans defeat the Indianapolis Colts by a score of 23-19. Texans missed the extra point on the game-winning touchdown, and then the and then they also took a safety as time ran down to... They ran it down to one second on the game. Houston clinches its first playoff appearance in four years. The Colts make the very questionable decision to sit Jonathan Taylor on fourth and one from the Houston 19-yard line. They opt to throw. And Gardner Minshew's pass behind its intended receiver. And so the Colts come up 19 yards short of reaching the postseason. The Texans ultimately won the AFC South thanks to Jacksonville's loss at Tennessee. C.J. Stroud for the game, 20 of 26 for 264 yards and two touchdowns. Nico Collins, nine catches, 195 yards. It's funny, too. Jonathan Taylor, had the, the Colts had given him the ball 30 times for 188 yards and a touchdown. And you would think that's the guy you're riding all year. Gardner Minshew only had 141 yards in this game. You would think 
for one yard, you're giving it to Jonathan Taylor. And not only do they not give it to Taylor, they don't even run the football. Very questionable, but still the end of a, a really good year for Shane Steichen and the Indianapolis Colts, who finished 9-8 and eight and probably exceeded expectations, especially after Anthony Richardson was lost for the year pretty early on in the season. So that is a team that is leaping forward. The Texans also really moving by leaps and bounds with Stroud quite possibly being the, the NFL's Offensive Rookie of the Year. That's that's where I'm leaning. I would think that's what's, who's going to be it. And an incredible first year for D'Amico Ryans, who, like Steichen, will get big consideration for Coach of the Year. Now, we mentioned that 28-20 win for the Titans, who were playing for nothing. But ultimately, that knocked the Jaguars out of the playoffs. Texans win the division. Steelers are in the playoffs. Texans are the four seed. They'll host the Cleveland Browns. The Steelers are the seven seed, as we mentioned, going to Buffalo. The surprising thing, after all of this, the, the, the Titans... 28-20 upset. Mike Vrabel had been saying all week, you know, we are playing to win. We are not playing to tank. We are not playing for draft stock. And yet, the Titans have fired Mike Vrabel after his sixth season with the organization. He, of course, led them to the AFC Championship game in the 2019 season. Got them back to the playoffs two years ago. They missed, they've, they've missed the playoffs the last couple of years, but he struggled at the to, to find a consistent quarterback with Ryan Tannehill suffering from injuries and getting aging as well. Maybe they've got something in Will Levis. I don't know, but this was a questionable move by the Tennessee Titans front office because Mike Vrabel is the best coach the Titans have had since Jeff since Jeff Fisher, and he is among the best coaches in the history of the organization be it as the Tennessee Titans or as the Houston Oilers. But he is going to be a coach with a lot of heat on him this offseason. There are going to be a lot of teams looking at him for sure. Again, rumors of the Raiders and the Chargers, etc., etc. I would say that maybe the best landing spot is actually Washington for him. Of course, they let go of Ron Rivera after a 4-13 and finish. That is a team that needs a defensive improvement after pretty much trading away their D-line. And it's also their closest, it's the closest job opening to Vrabel's Akron area hometown. I think it's, it's a Cuyahoga Falls or maybe Cayuga Falls, Ohio. That is assuming the Bears don't fire Matt Eberflus after a, a very good bounce back season where they finished 7-10 and 10 and really gave the Lions fits this year. But Mike Vrabel will definitely be a, a, a serious, viable head coaching candidate for a lot of te- any team with an opening this offseason. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers win the NFC South behind Baker Mayfield in a victory over the Carolina Panthers, a game they were, of course, well expected to win. They did so by a score of 9 to nothing in Charlotte as the Panthers closed their season at 2-15, and finished with the worst, worst record in the NFL, but of course, because they traded up for Bryce Young, the Bears will have that pick. They'll have two in the top seven or, or something to that extent. And so they, they might be able to trade it for a King's Ransom or, or they'll take a quarterback. I don't know. We'll see. Baker Mayfield, 137 yards for the game. 
Bryce Young didn't throw any picks, but only threw for 94 yards in this game on 18 attempts. Under 400 yards of total offense, in this, or, or just over 400 yards of total offense in this game between these two teams combined. But still, it's a remarkable comeback story. I don't know if it's... I don't know if he would technically qualify, but Baker Mayfield should be in high consideration for comeback player of the year, leading the Bucks to the NFC South t- South title. I, I think that should also prove that they don't have quite as bad a roster without Tom Brady as perhaps once indicated. But the Bucks actually improve on last season. The Bucks won their division last year, that's true. But they did not finish above 500. They actually went, I believe they went 8-9, and nine, if memory serves me correctly. And so they've actually improved this season. The Panthers, meanwhile, have fired their GM, Scott Fitterer, after three seasons. And this does make a lot of sense because Carolina went from a couple of years ago being a 7-9 and nine team and on the verge of the playoffs. A lot of games that they lost that they were in with good playoff teams, with Super Bowl contenders, with Teddy Bridgewater quarterback. Obviously, he was going to be... It seemed like he was going to be a gap quarterback, but they have gone to becoming a really incompetent mess with with Matt Rule being fired. One that really surprised me, and I think surprised a lot of people, is that Frank Reich, who is an established head coach, an established football mind, was fired after only 11 games this season, his first year with the Panthers. They've suffered with Ikemekwanu at left tackle, Bryce Young is kind of hit or miss. I see a lot of... I I saw some progress earlier on in the year in their game. They lost to the Saints on Monday Night Football where they were down, I think, two scores. But, and they were, and they were, the Saints were giving them the field at the end of the game. They were giving him the short throws. But I like what he can do in the two-minute offense. I think he is capable. But I think they really need a they really need a good draft this year, and it's going to be especially tough when you lose that number one overall pick. So it's it's been a real regression for Carolina when it looked like things were trending up. They've also dealt with an injured J.C. Horn, who's been a good pick when he's healthy, but really just a rough year for the Carolina Panthers. One of the roughest years in their history. Staying in the NFC South, the Atlanta Falcons fire Arthur Smith after a 7-10 season. Arthur Smith, of course, was the OC in Tennessee. And the biggest issue for the Falcons is the quarterback position. Now, in Tennessee, we talked about how Ryan Tannehill... I still think Ryan Tannehill has had a good tenure in Tennessee, but is not really the anchor for that offense. Really was more so Derrick Henry. The Falcons could not, have not really been able to develop the quarterback position with Desmond Ritter, let alone Taylor Heineke, and they, they, Arthur Smith not really able to build on that. that. That team has a lot of positives. They are not far away from being a playoff team, but this is a move that makes a lot of sense, especially after the Falcons were obliterated by the New Orleans Saints in Week 18 by a score of 48-17 at the Superdome in New Orleans. Dennis Allen likely to stay with the Saints this year, who, considering Derek Carr struggled and was injured a lot this year, 9-8 is very impressive. Honestly, I could give 
Dennis Allen some votes for Coach of the Year. Now, there was also a game at 1 o'clock, the only game that really dealt with the effects of the snow here in the northeastern United States this past weekend, and that was the Jets-Patriots game. The Jets beat the Pats by a score of 17-3 to in what is rumored to be Bill Belichick's final game as the New England Patriots head coach. Now, to be fair, Belichick has also said, I'm under contract, and it's, it's possible that he could be brought back. There are, There's nothing definitive yet. The Patriots organization has not said anything, really con- confirming anything yet. But it, that's, that, that's what reports have indicated. It, is, it would be rather poetic if... It, one, it would be rather poetic if this was Belichick's last game and he ended up playing, playing, uh, coaching against the Jets, but also that the Jets won. It's rather poetic considering the way Belichick got to New England as the head coach. Of course, there's that whole thing, the cocktail napkin. He left the Jets. It could have been perhaps due to Woody Johnson taking over after the passing of Leon Hess. But Belichick just abruptly resigning from the Jets and writing his resignation on a cocktail napkin. It's a very famous or an infamous story, depending on where you are in the Northeast. It's also poetic because the Jets knocked out Drew Bledsoe. And that's what led to, of course, Tom Brady becoming the starting quarterback for the Patriots. And then on top of that, you have Eric Mangini, who was an assistant under Belichick. And it was the Jets who apparently reported Belichick to the league and the Patriots to the league regarding Spygate. And so that further caused friction between these two teams. And I think, I want to say there were one-and-one head-to-head Jets-Patriots in the playoffs in since Belichick took over as their head coach. But it's just utterly fascinating that those two, and that it was a snow game, and that it was a game filled with snow. When you consider snow has been a predominant factor for the Patriots, I would say the two games that I think of the most are one, I would say the 2003 AFC Championship game. Peyton Manning got picked off either three or four times. I think it was 20 to, th- 20 to three pats, I want to say. Absolutely dominant defensive performance. And then there's the tuck rule game, which is also a huge transition point in the career of Bill Belichick and the career of Tom Brady in the history of the NFL. And, of course, heavy snow coming down in that game. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure Greg Zerline hit a field goal that was close to the same distance as Adam Vinatieri, the, the one that tied the game against the Raiders. But as for the game itself, Trevor Simeon, not great, 8 of 20, 70 yards. Of course, in the just an absolute, not I don't, I don't know if I'd say a blizzard, but bad, bad snow. Bailey Zappi had a rough day because... For all of Simeon's shortcomings, he didn't throw a pick. Bailey Zappi threw two, 12 of 30 for 88 yards. Big highlight, Brees Hall amasses 1,500-plus yards from scrimmage on the season. And the Jets also end a 15-game losing streak to the Patriots. Over the last few years, going back to the Brady era, as a matter of fact, so a big win for Robert Sala. It's the Jets team that actually went 7-10, and which is a bit surprising for, for how everybody was so 
disappointed in, in the Jets fan base after Rodgers sat. But it's funny, it's a team, you forget, this is a team that beat the Eagles when they before they really collapsed. It's a team that probably should have beaten the Kansas City Chiefs or maybe robbed of that game and have a higher ceiling. And next year could make some noise if Aaron Rodgers is healthy. So, and well, and if, he can, if he can keep his mouth shut to an extent. But we move on to the, the team on the other side, the other team that plays in East Rutherford. The Giants beat the Eagles this week 27-10 to close their season at 6-11. and I, I said it last week. I said the Giants were literally three yards, maybe less, for making the playoffs because they had they were a yard away from beating the Jets, fourth and one in the missed field goal, etc. They were a yard away from beating the Bills. There's the, the bad play at the end of the first half. They get no points after leaving the ball at the one-yard line. And then the touchdown, or lack of touchdown, their ball at the one-yard line at the end of the game. And then a, less than a foot, probably, from beating the Rams on the field on a potential field goal by Mason Crosby, etc., etc. And so... The, the Giants beat the Eagles, which was a game that was surprising for many. I was not particularly surprised. Remember, I had said that the, I could see the Cardinals beating the Eagles. I could honestly see the Giants beating the Eagles. And lo and behold, they lost both games. And so it's it's remarkable. The Eagles finish at 11-6 and six as the number 5 seed. It's a game that did not matter anyway because the Cowboys ended up winning, so the Eagles didn't get the the number two seed in the NFC East crown, but the Eagles really blew it because they lost to the Cardinals and the Giants in the last three weeks. And in many ways, and they nearly blew the game with the Giants two weeks ago, as a matter of fact, in Philadelphia. So this is a, this is a team on a downturn. They are the number five seed. They will play at the number four Buccaneers. I think there's also still a realistic possibility though, that they can get a home game the next round because I could see the Eagles beating the Bucks. I could see the Rams beating the Lions. I can honestly this one is more of a stretch. I can still honestly beat, see the Packers beating the Cowboys. And at that point, the Eagles would actually have a home game against the Los Angeles Rams. Again, let's not rule anything out. As for this game, for this game itself, Tyrod Taylor was great. 23 of 32 for 297 yards and a touchdown. Did throw a pick right before halftime that cost the Giants three points. This was after Marcus Mariota had come in. To replace Jalen Hurts, who may have a serious finger injury, was not necessarily playing particularly well anyway. I think only had about 55 yards. Mariota and Hurts combined for, I believe, three picks in this game. Hurts had a really rough first half. The Eagles, a combined three picks, two going to Xavier McKinney. Mariota... Went 13 of 20 for 148 yards, a touchdown, and a pick. Sterling Shepard. That's 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 the one real upside for the Giants besides actually getting the win. They, they lose draft position a little bit. They're going to end up with the number six pick. Sterling Shepard reaches fifth in franchise receptions in what is likely his final game as a Giant, if not for his career. Eight seasons with the Giants, a guy who dealt with a lot of injuries in the last couple of years, was never necessarily their number one guy, but a few years ago, you may remember it was Shepard, Brandon Marshall, and OBJ, who all, I think all tore their ACL in the same game, Giants and the Rams. So a a difficult finish to his career, but a guy with, who've had, I think, over, over 4,000 yards for sure as a Giant, very promising receiver, a fan favorite, 
and a guy who didn't always have everything around him made the best of a bad situation. So that's that's it for him, at least as a giant, if not for his career. Wink Martindale, the defensive coordinator, has mutually agreed to part ways with the team after reportedly cursing out Brian Dable during a meeting regarding staff firings. There were rumors that they did not have the best relationship. It was rather tempestuous. There was there were rumors of that earlier in the season. And it seems those rumors have come to light that that these things have come to fruition. But a big loss for the Giants because their defense, even though they were bottom five or six or so in scoring, I think they gave up about 24 points a game this year, which is still honestly not that bad, but you throw in the fact that they scored 15 a game and were with and had three quarterbacks this year. But the, the Giants' defense was, I think, tied for first, if not tied for second in the league in turnover differential. So they were able to, to do that. Their run defense was a lot weaker than their pass defense, but it was a team that had a lot going for it. So you wonder where they will turn. The rumor, perhaps they will bring in Antonio Pierce if the Raiders do not give him the job, which... I, I would argue perhaps that they should. He's well-liked in that locker room. Keep him as the head coach. But Antonio Pierce could return to the Giants after playing with them for, I believe, nine years, winning the Super Bowl with them. The bigger thing, I would argue, and the, the, the more positive thing, of course, for the Giants, they fired their special teams coordinator, Thomas McGahee. But the bigger thing, they fired their offensive line coach, Bobby Johnson. And this is an offensive line. You can, look, you can't pin everything on him because the Giants have had a weak offensive line for many years. You could argue they have not had a good offensive line since they last won the Super Bowl. And they do have, although they do have a couple of very promising players in Andrew Thomas and John Michael Schmitz, they need help at the guard position and at the right tackle position. Evan Neal has been a real disappointment to the organization, but especially to the fan base with the whole burger flipping comment earlier this season, so the offensive line continues to be the position the Giants need to address the most, and this is perhaps the start of it. The Dallas Cowboys win the NFC East and the number two seed with a blowout win at the Commanders 38-10. The NFC East extends its streak to 19 years, longest in NFL history without a repeat winner in that division. The Commanders fire Ron Rivera after a 4-13 season, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt in that even though he had time, he lost his defensive line halfway through. They kind of gave up on the season. A change in ownership, even though fans will say that it is beneficial because of the really, not, not even divisive, the, just the controversial and just questionable ownership decisions made by Dan Snyder. But still, Josh Harris taking over will ultimately hurt Ron Rivera and end his career in Washington. The Seahawks defeat the Cardinals, but ultimately miss the playoffs at 9-8 due to the Packers holding the tiebreak. Pete Carroll is out as the Seahawks head coach after 14 seasons, a Super Bowl title, which, of course, it should have been two, not only because of 
that the questionable decision, really maybe the one of the worst decisions in NFL history by Daryl Bevel to throw from the one yard line, but also Deflategate didn't help. Two NFC championships, five NFC West titles, and ten playoff appearances in 14 years. Pete Carroll, undoubtedly the best coach in the history of the Seattle Seahawks, very likely a future member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He will stay on as a, a member of perhaps the front office. He'll take an advisory role, which makes perfect sense. That's the team with whom he will be remembered forever. But the turning point here, moving forward, this is the first head coach search under Jody Allen after her brother Paul's passing. Now, Seattle's Super Bowl-winning defensive coordinator, Dan Quinn, who nearly led the Falcons to a Super Bowl title back in 2016 and is currently Dallas's defensive coordinator. Of course, their defense has been unbelievable this year. Dan Quinn is reportedly a serious candidate for the role. It would make a lot of sense if he were to end up with that job. The Green Bay Packers defeat the Chicago Bears 17-9 to reach the playoffs in Jordan Love's first year as the Packers' starting quarterback. The Bears, I will say, are much improved at 7-10. I honestly think they could st- stick with Justin Fields. I, If I were the Bears, I think I might. The Bears also almost swept the Lions this season, which is especially impressive for how much that team developed. The Bears are not as far off as you think, and of course they will be very high in the, the, the draft order this year at number one, and of course having another... I think they should have another top 10 pick. It'll at least be pretty close. They have an opportunity to make this team a serious playoff contender, and maybe maybe with a chance at the NFC North next year if they really do things right. The Buffalo Bills defeat the Miami Dolphins on the road 21-14. They claim their fourth straight AFC East title and the number two seed in the AFC. They will play host to the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Bills at 6-6. Six and six. It, It's almost like, Michigan having the scandal and then going on to win the national championship thinking, oh, this is the this is the year they finally do it. The Bills were 6-6. Six and six. They had been downtrodden, criticized by a lot, by many, and yet they win their last five to close the season. Now, I'm going to offer my picks for the weekend. I'm going to take the number five Browns over the number four Texans. Cleveland's defense is dominant. They have a more experienced head coach in Kevin Stefanski and a team that has reached the playoffs, or a team that reached the playoffs two years ago, it's less of a surprise that they are actually here. If Joe Flacco can limit the turnovers to an extent, or at least just have the positive outweigh those turnovers, I could easily see Cleveland winning this game. I will take the number three Chiefs over the number six Dolphins. The Chiefs can survive with a short passing game and dominant defense in negative temperatures. It looks like it's going to be a really cold game in Kansas City this weekend. While the Dolphins will struggle to go deep, I think the Chiefs have a better short passing game. Patrick Mahomes has definitely evolved in the last few years to the, in that sense where he's a lot better at just taking those short gains. And for the Dolphins, both running backs, I think, are going to struggle on frozen ground after injuries earlier this season, Raheem Mostert and Devon Achan. The number two Bills, I think, definitely should beat the number seven Steelers. Three words, no T.J. Watt. Also, the Bills are so much better offensively and have caught fire. It looks like it's going to be Mason Rudolph this weekend. Not to say Kenny Pickett is that big an improvement over Mason Rudolph, but I like him. I think the I think the Steelers can keep this a one-score game if they can avoid turnovers. And of course, 
The Bills have a really banged up secondary this year, so that's quite possible. Plus, playing in Orchard Park, that's one of the best places, one of the easiest places for Steeler fans to travel. And of course, Steeler fans travel very well. I'll take the number two Cowboys over the number seven Packers. Dallas has the far more experienced quarterback and a suffocating defense. But I will say, if the Packers can contain CeeDee Lamb, I've, I've said this the last couple of weeks, if you contain CeeDee Lamb, you contain the Dallas Cowboys offense because they are not particularly strong at the skill positions. They've relied too much on CeeDee Lamb. So if the Packers can contain him, expect them to at least make it close. However, I will take the Cowboys to win this game. Number six Rams over the number three Lions. Yes, it would be incredible if the Lions were to win this game over Matthew Stafford of all people. Imagine telling a Lions fan, I don't know, maybe three, four years ago, okay, 2023, you're going to have the first playoff game ever at Ford Field. Is Matthew Stafford going to be a quarterback? Yes, but he's going to be the quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. He'll already have won a Super Bowl. But the Lions fans can only be pretty happy where they are right now. However, I will take the Rams to win this game because I think Sean McVay can outcoach Dan Campbell, especially if Dan Campbell gets too aggressive, as you can argue in some ways he did against the Cowboys. You can't be too impulsive when it comes to playoff football because the Lions were at least playing with house money. They they were about to lock up the division. They were It was not as serious a game. Also, the Lions defense is not particularly strong this year outside of Aiden Hutchinson, and Matthew Stafford, I think, has faced enough now to wear down his old team, but it will be loud in that building, and I, I could very well see the Lions winning as well. Number five Eagles, I will take to beat the number four Buccaneers. I know the Eagles have fallen over the last few weeks, but when push comes to shove, they still have arguably the best offensive line in football. They have a better coach, they have a better QB, a better defense, a better receiving core, better running backs, etc. than the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It is obvious, no matter what has happened as of late, that the Eagles are the better team than the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. All right, we've still got some time. We'll talk about college hoops. Providence junior forward guard Bryce Hopkins done for the year after suffering a left knee injury and a 61-57 home loss to Seton Hall. He was averaging over 15 points a game, over 8 rebounds a game. The Friars were ranked 23rd in the country prior to the loss, one of the best teams in the Big East. But Seton Hall has been in the middle of, they, they've been on a roll as of late. They, on Saturday, beat number 7 Marquette, 78-75 at the Prudential Center, behind 40-plus combined points between Alamir Dawes and Kadari Richmond. The Pirates go to 3-0. and against ranked Big East teams this season. Creighton is now ranked, so they, st they still have that one. B besides facing any of those three teams, again, they've beaten defending national champion UConn at the Prudential Center earlier this year. UConn was ranked number five in the country at the time. They've beaten Marquette. They beat Providence, of course, as I mentioned. Yet somehow Seton Hall still sits unranked, despite receiving 34 votes in the AP poll. The Pirates also, in some ways, playing down to competition because they're either losing or winning close games against the teams that have not been as strong in the Big East. Georgetown, now 8-8, eight and eight. Seton Hall barely survived them, 74-70 to 70 at Capital One Arena in Washington, D.C. 
25 points and 5 rebounds for Alamir Dolls. Ultimately, the Pirates do win. They go to 4-1 and one in Big East play and 11-5 and five overall. And we'll see if that sways voters at all. In the NBA, the Knicks waived Taj Gibson after a three-week stint in Mitchell Robinson's absence. He played in 10 games off the bench, but the Knicks did fill their big man need with their trade for OG Ananobi and Precious Achua. Taj Gibson just seemed tired. He seemed gassed. And it, it seemed like he was he was playing to his age. It, it, it did make sense. Just, just seemed tired, worn out, and even for, for a small amount of minutes was not really what they needed. But ultimately, did the Knicks a favor in holding the fort for a little while before they could make that deal? And it'll be wild to see what happens when Mitchell Robinson does return, whenever that is. The Mets, let's, let's talk about baseball while we're here. The Mets signed Harrison Bader to a one-year, $10.5 million deal. Bader, some people have called, some Mets fans have called out this deal. I think it's a really good one because Bader is a great defensive outfielder. He's excellent on the base paths. He's a good clubhouse presence. And he's a decent hitter with a little bit of power. He's also a local kid from Westchester, was quietly a fan favorite with the Yankees for the brief time he was there. He was beloved in St. Louis, so that, I think that's a good pickup. The Mets also signed Sean Manaya to a two-year, $28 million deal with an opt-out after the first year. Of course, Mets trying to catch lightning in a bottle. Sean Manaya, a guy who threw a no-hitter against the Red Sox a few years ago with Oakland, had a lot of promise there. Finished with a 4.44 ERA last year, which is not incredible. 7-6, threw over 115 innings, but did record a 2.25 ERA in four September starts with the San Francisco Giants. So it, it could be a big move for the Mets in the mid-to-back part of the rotation. 4.44 ERA is still averaging better than a quality start. Three runs over six innings, a 4.5 ERA. So it's a good pickup, it, at least at the moment, seems like a good pickup for the Mets. The Braves, of course, had taken a flyer on Chris Sale trading for him. They've signed him to a two-year, $38 million deal with an $18 million third-year club option. So that goes a little bit, it goes a million dollars under the average of those first two years. And, of course, for, for Sale's age, should be well into his 30s by the time that deal is done. That is good financial sense for the Braves in that third year. They're spending a little more on free agents when you consider that they've saved and deferred money, or at least given more guaranteed money on long-term deals to younger players like Michael Harris and Austin Riley, homegrown guys. The Giants... Acquire Robbie Ray from the Mariners for former Mariner Mitch Hanniger and right-handed pitcher Anthony DiScalfani and Cash, as a matter of fact. The Giants needed starting pitching in addition to really good pitcher in Logan Webb, who is not going to carry that rotation, doing a great job in terms of innings, but tapered off in terms of ERA this year. They get a perennial Cy Young contender in Robbie Ray, who is excellent in Toronto, excellent in Seattle. The Mariners need another bat. And they need a relief pitching, and they will make fans very happy after Hanniger's one-year absence after a number of years in Seattle. Also in the National League West, the Dodgers signed Teoscar Hernandez to a one-year, $23.5 million deal. 
he was also with the Mariners last year, played well with them, but with them and also with the Blue Jays, he was one of the he was quietly one of the deadliest hitters in the Blue Jays order. Very good power hitter, very light bat. Very very light swing makes it look easy. He will help quench the Dodgers' need for a dangerous righty hitter. And so in addition to picking up Otani and just having an incredible offseason the Dodgers have, they pick up what what any other year would probably be a big pickup in Tay Oscar Hernandez. He's one of 12 players with 25 or more homers in each of the last four full seasons. So, of course, rule out 2020, the 60-game season under COVID. And he's a two-time silver slugger. And the last thing we can discuss this week is a historic hire by the Miami Marlins, who have brought in as their next director of player development, Rachel Balkovic, who of course was the first female minor league affiliate manager, first minor, first female minor league affiliate full-time hitting coach, first female minor league affiliate full-time strength and conditioning coach. Doing so within, I think most recently, I believe, within the Yankee organization with the Tampa, I think it's Tarpons, Tarpons, I'm not sure exactly. Of course, it's the Yankees' GCL affiliate, Gulf Coast League affiliate. This is another link to the Yankees in the post-Jeter ownership, considering she had last worked with the Tampa affiliate, the Gulf Coast affiliate. It's also the next major female hire within the, Mar- within the Marlins organization. Of course, Kim Ang, who, by the way, was another big link to the Yankees, worked under Brian Cashman for many years. Kim Ang, who served as the first female GM in Major League history from 2021 to 23. Of course, she has stepped down as the team's GM after three seasons, after leading the team to the playoffs this past year, becoming the first female GM to do that. Stepped down after the team made the decision to hire a baseball operations president, which would go above her role. She'd have to report to that person. But it's another major innovator, major trailblazing role for the Miami Marlins. And Rachel Balkovic is also incredibly smart. It's not just making history here and just hiring a woman. This is a woman who has not only worked well as a hitting coach, but we mentioned the whole thing about strength and conditioning. She has an extensive history and an extensive education in strength and conditioning. She, as a, a trainer, a coach, she really knows every facet of the game She's incredibly smart and a rising player in the, the, the front office, so this makes perfect sense for her to get this job. Very smart, really knows analytics pretty well, and that's very important for a Marlins team that continues to build on what seems to be a very strong farm system that has been built in the last few years. I'll say it again, I think Derek Jeter's role with the Marlins was ultimately, his tenure with the Marlins was ultimately a success, even though they didn't get past the division series. And even though they broke down, got rid of guys like Giancarlo Stanton, Justin Bohr, a number of really good players, they built a more sustainable model. And this is a continuation of that. And and another trailblazing role in that we're not just going to hire the best man, we're going to think outside the box, we're going to hire the best person. And the Marlins have continued to build their organization and create even more homegrown talent. Well, that does it for us this week. I thank you so much for your time. Please continue to listen to us wherever you get your podcasts, but 
We'd prefer if you listen to us on Spotify. That really helps us out as we continue to try to monetize the podcast. We think our, our work is, is definitely worth a, a little bit of money, and we are, we are very happy about that. And leave us a nice review. Tell us what you want to hear. Please reach out to me on social media. Respond to some of our, our questions or our prompts each week, and we will be happy to oblige. So we'll see you next time on Sports in the Waiting Room. Okay. If you stuck around, let's consider this a hidden bonus track. This came out literally right as I was about to upload the podcast. Nick Saban is retiring. And so we'll probably talk about this more next week, but just had to bring it up. Nick Saban, who has more national championships as a head coach in FBS college football than anyone else in history with seven, six at Alabama, one at LSU, is retiring. And I think that's that's pretty much all you can really say. The, he is the best ever to do it. Bear Bryant is up there, but it is proven. Nick Saban, without controversy, you, you may hate him because, hey, you know, a lot of people hate Alabama, but he has done it as well as anyone else. Seven national championships, an unbelievable powerhouse. And that is it. So... We'll elaborate on that next week. We'll elaborate on the decision, figure out what else comes out, and we'll talk to you next time on Sports in the Waiting Room.